You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment Level 1, and this is the second day-long in the series of three day-longs. There is a fourth day-long called uh, Meditation and Attachment for Couplings, which focuses on the third pillar of the three-pillar approach that we use, which is uh, understanding and developing collaborative relationships. And I do really think of them all as a group, um, but the basic material is covered in the first three days. So consider doing the fourth day, which is going to be just every other week coming up from now. So over the next uh, course of the month, I'm going to be teaching today with uh, Laura Kosner, if you want to wave, and Zach Oldenburg. (laughs) Sorry. Laura, wave. And now everyone wave back. So we can actually see who it is that's waving. (laughs) Okay. Zach, wave. And now everyone could wave at Zach, so we see who Zach is. All right, good. If you are here in front of your camera, I would prefer that you leave your camera on because I prefer to be a, a television performer rather than a radio performer. <laughs> it's also better for the cohesion of the group that we actually can see what's happening. We teach in a Socratic method, which means that we're going to circle around the material uh, and we're going to invite you and encourage you to ask questions at any point along the way uh, so that we really have a sense of what we're saying uh, uh, matches how it's landing. Often in, in communication, we'll say and mean uh, and think we're communicating one thing and it will land in a different way. It's better for us. Uh, to to direct the information if we're getting feedback about how it's landing. The only time that we would likely to uh, be to curtail that would be if you, in a sudden preoccupied moment, decide that you're going to switch the topic to something else that only you can talk about and leave all of us behind, in which case we will hook you back in to the topic at hand. Is that all making sense? Um, there is a lot of material in this. And so in the level one, we want you to have a, 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 the breadth of the material without necessarily the depth of the material. We have level two set up if you decide that the breadth of the material is interesting enough and you want to go deeper. But one of the things about the human condition is that we live in bio containers and Learning is not something that switches on and off. It has to be grown. And that means you have to have time to grow it. So you get the data dump, and then there's the process of connecting it. And then you come back uh, uh, and uh, continue to investigate uh, as to whether what you thought uh, we were saying is an actual good match for what what we were saying. I am going to talk about uh, emotional regulation uh, and how that's tied into mentalizing. And then uh, I'm going to turn it over to Laura uh, and she's going to talk about, what are you going to talk about? 
the characteristics of secure attachment and how we can work towards them to get earned secure attachment. Great. Zach is going to go do, do the afternoon. What are you going to talk about? Uh, insecure attachment, uh, organized insecure attachment strategies, so dismissing and preoccupied. So in the framework of attachment, understand that we are taking this from the adult attachment interview. I, um, and this is mainly coming from being a gay man and being discriminated against my entire life, need things that you can quantify so that I can, I can demonstrate that I'm just as good as everybody else. Here are the same numbers. Uh, so everything I like to do has to have this kind of empirical backup to it. Um, uh, mainly from the, the experience of never being promoted and being fired and all the rest of the stuff that happened early on in my life. Um, <clears throat> so uh, we took the uh, material from the AAI in developing these lists. So when we talk about these lists uh, of, of skill sets for secure functioning and we talk about the list for the skill set of insecure functioning, it's drawn from what the AAI tests were. So the adult attachment interview is the instrument that uh, is uh, widely accepted as the, the uh, best way to evaluate attachment strategies in adults. <clears throat> um, it is uh, partly a cognitive functioning. So uh, uh, the, the use of it is restricted to people who are 16 years and older. There's a gap in between childhood and 16-year-oldism. Uh, uh, and that is, there's another uh, uh, um, instrument for testing that. And then they use the strange situation for children. Um, so uh, Laura will, will do the uh, secure functioning. And then uh, Zach will do the organized insecure functioning. So remember, attachment is divided into organized and disorganized. And then at the beginning of the third uh, uh, day long, we'll cover disorganized. The disorganized territory is as large as the organized territory. Uh, and so uh, uh, we may need most of the morning on the third uh, day long to cover that. Um, but what I would like to do is start out uh, and ask if there are any questions from the last day long that, that you would like to have uh, resolved. I'm switching over to speaker views. Uh, there is a, 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 uh, <clears throat> a hand raising function in uh, Zoom so that if, that if you would use that, that would be easier for us to be able to track questions. And please feel free to uh, direct questions to me, to Laura, or to Zach. Anybody want to start off with a question? Otherwise, uh, I'll launch into the topic. All right. <clears throat> We talked about mentalizing. When we look at the three pillar approach for the repair of attachment disturbances, 
The first is remapping the early parenting experience, and we primarily use Ideal Parent Figure Protocol for that. The afternoon of the third day, we'll spend just talking about Ideal Parent Figure Protocol. The second pillar is mentalizing or mentalizing training. There are several ways to do this. You could do it in a therapeutic relationship with somebody who was trained to teach mentalizing in a, a, a cognitive dialogue way. I think that uh, because I wanted this approach to be widely available to people uh, and that uh, the, the pace of having to have managed sessions uh, is too slow and also the cost is too high, that if you could teach people meditation strategies that they could then employ during their sitting practice, they would be able to make much swifter progress and actually be able to afford to make the progress. One of the problems in the US with the mental health system is that there really isn't a public mental health system. And if you don't have private resources to pay for things, you don't get treatment here. Uh, this is not true in other parts of the world. Uh, I was working with a student in Holland. He said he can't afford to do the AAI. And I said, uh, see if your uh, public health system will pay for it. And in, turned out that it did. Uh, and then it also turned out that they, they would reimburse him for taking our level two class. So it is possible to have these robust public health systems that actually do help people and not this uh, for-profit healthcare system that actually prefers uh, not to cure people because it cuts into the profit margin. What you're gonna get from me over and over again is these sort of mini flare-ups of standing on the soapbox and preaching, but uh, I do step off, but anyway. <clears throat> um, so mentalizing, when we talked about it, we talked about it with the Peter Fonicky, uh, Anthony Bateman, uh, research that was done through the Tavistock Clinic in London about the development of early mentalizing capacity that happens in the dyadic relationship with uh, the primary caregiver. You're an infant, uh, you can't even sit up or roll over, you cry out to the world for someone to help you because if you don't get that help, you don't survive. We go through a process of first looking as cute as we possibly can. And it is our deepest hope that when we look really cute, somebody will help us so we don't have to go on to the more distressing ways of trying to get help. But if nobody comes when you're looking as cute as you can, it creates a sense of confusion because the, the nature of the human condition is collaborative and we, we, we need to be helped. We need to be helped from the very beginning. And so the confusion then turns into a whimper, which turns into an intermittent cry, which turns into a continuous cry, which turns into a tantrum. If nobody comes by the time you're tantruming, and if you've ever been around a child tantruming, it is an amazing amount of energy that they're putting out to try and get somebody to pay attention to them. They shut down in an, into anaclyptic depression. What you want to know about this uh, is that all of those states, depending on how repeated they are and how prolonged they are, changes the physical structure of the brain, and it moves you out of a natively secure brain down the line toward uh, different types of either organized insecure brains or disorganized ones in terms of the attachment system. 
when we say that you earn security, we're not saying that you grow a new secure brain. We're saying that you adapt to the brain that developed during your childhood with new strategies to operate the brain so that you can function securely, but you still have the native brain that you have. So if you have all of these experiences, those things can still happen to you. You just have a better way to mentalize them and also better strategies in how to respond to them. So the early mentalizing is these four dimensions of mentalizing, spontaneity versus um, monitoring, uh, self versus other, internal versus external, cognitive versus effective. We use meditation to develop those mentalizing capacities in a Vipassana meditation. We want to allow any spontaneous arising of any experience and be able to monitor it continuously and not get pulled out. So you may have the experience of sitting in meditation and being on track, and then all of a sudden you're completely lost in thought and you've lost the meditation. That would be swept up onto the spontaneous side, losing the monitoring side. So you're out of balance on that dimension of mentalizing. So you swing back by increasing the intensity of the monitoring. But you may find that you swing so far over onto the monitoring side that um, the spontaneity shuts down. Have you ever, if you've used Shinzen's techniques and worked with uh, auditory space, have you noticed that you're wandering around in your daily life and your mind is just ceaselessly chattering? And then as soon as you bring your attention to auditory thinking space, it's absolutely quiet, not a peep. That would be too far onto the monitoring side. And so we want to swing back and forth until we can have a completely uninhibited flow of experience and be completely present for all of it. Self versus other is another. Self is this experience uh, of knowing that we're doing it. We're in charge. We're controlling. We're creating. This is me. It's happening to me. All of those experiences are self experiences. And then other experiences, that's you. You're different from me. That's happening to you. You're doing that to me. All of those kinds of things. It's uh, in a, I describe this and often with the discussion of self and others, it's perfectly obvious that you're you and you, you're different from someone else. But uh, depending on your attachment conditioning, that may or may not be true. Uh, there are certain um, uh, experiences in the relationship of the mentalizing and self and other that come apart depending on what uh, attachment strategies is. So secure people can identify themselves and what's related to them, and they can identify other people, and they can keep them distinct, and it's pretty easy. Dismissing people, because of the nature of their attachment conditioning, don't really directly experience other people. Everything is an internal working model. So if they're considering someone else, they're not actually considering information about the other person that's, that's verifiable. It's really just a working model internally so that they, they don't have the dimension of other very well developed and often can't detect it. In preoccupied people, the other becomes the dominant experience and the self experience can get lost so they can get totally enmeshed in the experience of the other and not be able to distinguish that from their own uh, self experience. So in the developing of mentalizing, we need to get a sort of baseline of where we are and then 
um, begin to uh, work on the dimensions that we need. Uh, internal versus external. Uh, the secure people are really good at discerning what the internal experience is, and they have a lot of freedom in how they express it externally. Dismissing people don't have much reference for external experience. It's all an internal experience for them. Um, <clears throat> but a lot of the, the parts of the internal experience are not open and freely uh, allowed into consciousness. So it's an interesting mix for them. They don't really relate externally very well because they're not empathetic. They're not empathetic because their primary means of emotional regulation is to suppress awareness of emotions. So we're, you're beginning to see this link between mentalizing and emotional regulation. Dismissing people's primary means of emotional regulation is to suppress awareness of emotion. And depending on how much they do, uh, they may have no felt embodied sense of emotion at all. They may have limited or no cognitive uh, recognition of uh, what their emotional states are, which means they have no freedom in expression. They can't tell what's happening. And so they, they can't moderate consciously their expression. So they're, they tend to be quite reactive in a particular way. Preoccupied people uh, tend to get totally wrapped up in the external experience and they lose their own internal experience. And so they tend to be reactive constantly because the expressions are always external. Uh, disorganized people, it's a, it could be uh, anything any combination of, of, of the organized response. <clears throat> in, the in the meditation strategies that we're teaching, we're teaching focuses on each of these things. So uh, to develop the capacity to mentalize using specific meditation strategies is required. A general meditation practice will not uh, affect the uh, mentalizing capacity that you have um, in a way that is reparative for attachment. And we, we have that um, uh, uh, um, evidence in our preliminary study that we did. So you need to learn the basic meditation techniques that we offer in relationship to this class and also them uh, once you learn the techniques, learn the meditation strategies that are specifically designed to affect the um, uh, development of mentalizing in this early stage. There are then two other um, mentalizing capacities that you want to address, uh, but they come later. Uh, once autobiographical, the autobiographical memory system comes online, you have these two other dimensions that happen. Um, the first one um, is around what we call in Buddhism fixed views. You have your early attachment conditioning. You develop the, the emotional regulation skills that exist in the family system. Uh, 
you may or may not be surprised by this, but when you're born, you have no capacity to regulate your own experience, if you remember this development. Um, we're all autoregulators when we're born. Uh, the evolutionarists think that the reason that the human brain is so underdeveloped when, it's, when we're born is that a full-size brain wouldn't be able to pass through the birth canal. And so the way that our species adapted to having a larger brain was to uh, uh, allow uh, what really would be considered in the rest of the animal world a premature birth. For instance, uh, a great ape baby is born with the capacity of a 18-month-old human baby, and their brain structure is fully formed. In human brains, the brain stem is fully formed, the right hemisphere is partially formed, and the less, less left hemisphere is largely unformed. What this means, uh, and one of the, the reasons why attachment systems in humans uh, is, is such a pronounced experience is because our brain develops directly in relationship to the environment that we're in. We don't come in with a full brain that's then affected by the environment. It actually supports particular uh, brain structures in growing based on the conditions of our early childhood experience. This process takes about three years for the, that first level uh, to happen. And then once the autobiographical memory comes online, the secondary systems of um, uh, mentalizing come forward. And then um, really there's a big change in the brain around puberty and uh, that sets up a, a, an additional dimension to human relationships, which is the, the desire for procreation or the desire for uh, sexual activity, which is another system. All of these systems will need to be examined in order to move into a place of uh, really earned secure functioning. Um, it may sound like a lot to do, but what I can tell you is that if you do it, life is so much easier than being in insecure attachment that it's a complete no-brainer once you get to the other side. You just look at it and say, I wish I'd done that as early as I can. I actually wish that I uh, <clears throat> screamed at my parents at four years old to get them to up their game. <laughs> You, you, we all did that. If you if you didn't have uh, uh, if you didn't have good enough care, you raised a ruckus. Everybody did it. Didn't didn't really help. Uh, so I'm being somewhat facetious, but uh, you know, well cared children um, are pleasant to be around, and children that aren't well cared for are unpleasant to be around. It's just how it is. They're calling out in the way that they know to try and get someone to help them. And often it has the opposite effect. In the the uh, the next part of mentalizing, which is this uh, fixed views or schemas, is what what it's called in Western psychology. You develop these. Really, what it is is uh, um, how the world is, and it limits the the capacity to respond. And often what we begin to do is limit our imagination around what, what's available to us. And part of this is, is, is trying to begin to develop this capacity for emotional regulation. 
Um, when we're born, we're all autoregulators. Uh, and then somewhere between five and eight months, the brain develops enough that we begin to recognize that there are other people and that they come and attend to us. If somebody comes reliably enough to attend to us and help us regulate our experience, we shift from being this self-contained uh, unit into recognizing that the external world is there and that it, it affects us. And we turn our attention toward other people to help us. If they come consistently enough, as the brain develops, we move into a collaborative relationship with the caregiver uh, and develop, begin to develop our uh, skill set around collaboration. This is very early. This is in the first year of life. You have the attachment system that, that draws you toward protection and toward care. You have um, the exploration system, which, which is uh, linked to the attachment system. If the attachment system is on, typically the exploration system is off. If the attachment system is off, the exploration system is on. And then uh, not connected to those two others is the third system of collaboration. You need to move beyond externally regulating into a secure relationship with your caregiver in order for the collaboration system to turn on and begin to be developed. When you learn uh, to collaborate with your uh, emotional regulation with your caregiver, so what you're looking at is a caregiver who tunes into you, who empathetically connects to you, who thinks they understand what's going on with you, who mirrors back to you what they think is going on, and then providing care. If the care that, that you receive at the end of that cycle matches what's actually happening with you, you feel seen, you feel known, you feel taken care of, you feel secure. And if that doesn't happen, if you put out there in the way that you can pre-verbally with not, not really knowing uh, even that you're separate in the world from every, everything else that's there, uh, what you need, not even knowing what that is, and the caregiver you have misattunes to you, then that cycle that leads to a sense of security doesn't happen. Is that making sense? If you're an infant and each time you put out one particular experience, one particular request, and your caregiver uh, is sensitive enough and they mirror back to you that same thing. We learn to associate emotions and experiences with facial expressions by the mirroring process of the caregiver. Oh, you're sad. Have you ever noticed a caregiver? Oh, you're sad. And then they make a sad face. That's how the child begins to learn that 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 facial expression is tied to this physical sensation in the body. That means one thing, but it also leads to a kind of care that you're likely to get in that family system. Is that making sense? So we learn this. This is all learned behavior. This is all emotional regulation behavior and where the origins of it are. Um, imagine you're, you have an experience of sadness that's uh, 
that you have no understanding what the origins of that sadness are. And you put out this, this experience, this open expression of sadness, and your caregiver sensitively enough uh, attunes to you. They pick up on the sadness. It causes an empathetic response to them where they mirror back this sad expression. And then in that family system, what happens then is they draw you close and they hold you and they tenderly um, you know, make sounds really for an infant, uh, coo at you or soothe you uh, and rock you and monitor that sadness as it comes and goes. And then when the sadness goes, uh, they immediately encourage you back to uh, the present moment environment and to pick up where you left off. And each time you make that expression of sadness, that's the response that you get from your caregiver, so that you know when that experience of sadness arises, what will happen is this series of things that are soothing, and then you begin to learn how to do those uh, um, soothing um, care things for yourself. And then that's the fourth stage of this, which we call self-mastery. Is that making sense? But in order to be able to be good at emotionally regulating yourself and good at recognizing what your emotions are, you have to get all the way through to the collaborative experience of care with a sensitive enough caregiver teaching you, training you to do this. And if at any point along the way that's disrupted, you don't develop those other skills because nobody's teaching them to you. Is that making sense? It's not a deficit of you and your capacities. It's a, it's a failure of uh, training on the part of your caregiver. Is that making sense? I really want you to take that in, that if, if you don't have secure attachment, you don't have secure attachment, not because there's some intrinsic failure in you, some uh, intrinsic lack of capacity in you. And one of the reasons this is important is because you have the capacity for this and it can be learned. You just have to go through the stages that are necessary to learn it. And then once you've learned it, of course, there it is. Do you remember how learning goes? Um, uh, anybody here be, uh, able to ride a two-wheeler? Um, how many times did you fall over before you could ride along? How long did you have to ride before it just became automatic and you don't even think about it? You're just riding along, not a, not a thought in your head about keeping balance, right? Swerving in and out of traffic. Um, <clears throat> How long did that take? This isn't, this is learning. This isn't different than that. So there's going to be a lot of, you know, falling over sideways, um, hopefully not running into too many trees. Um, but to develop that uh, capacity to do this. One of the things that I like about the teachers that I've chosen to work with is uh, in the Tibetan tradition is pointing out the great way and in the uh, Theravada, I'm using that in quotations because it, it's sort of the uh, Shinzen really teaches the American mashup of Buddhism uh, since he draws from all of the lineages. Um, 
and he's secularized everything, so it's stripped down, um, is they give a lot of instructions. I tend to find that I err on the side of a lot of instructions, and so that's what you tend to get from me. Um, it is not uncommon for people to say, you're over-instructing, but that that's my bias. Um, so in learning mentalizing and uh, the one of the great ex things that happen from uh, learning to mentalize well is also this piece around emotional regulation. What do you notice about the your capacity to think clearly when you're really emotionally revved up? <laughs> There's sort of a teeter-totter. You're really revved up. You can't think, you know, as I like to say, you can't um, make your way out of a, a paper bag that's on fire, you know? Uh, you just can't think at all. And so one of the things about uh, this mentalizing piece is we're going to begin to tie it into emotional regulation and understand that for most adults, what we do to emotionally regulate is think, right? So something happens. We have our window of tolerance. Uh, an emotional event happens. If it falls within that window of tolerance, window of tolerance is a, a Dan Siegel concept. We are conditioned in our family systems to develop a, a, a capacity to re regulate emotions, which includes the intensity of the emotional experience, which creates this window of tolerance for emotional experiences. If something happens and the, the emotional experience falls within that, then <clears throat> not, you don't need to regulate it. It just comes and goes. And so really what we want to do is, is greatly expand that window of tolerance so we can tolerate intense emotions. Why do we need to tolerate intense emotions? And why is that fundamental to secure attachment? Because uh, nobody ever answers this question, but I'll throw it out there just in case before I just immediately answer it. <laughs> Um, because life is hard. Life is hard. And when, when it gets too hard, what do you like? To rage. Oh, well then what you need is somebody who can tolerate a lot of rage if that's what you're going to do, because otherwise you'll be alone. Right. Is that making sense? you need uh, a big emotional tolerance for your own experiences so that you can explore really to the edge of what's meaningful, but you can't do all of this alone. You have to travel with other people and you need a big capacity also to help them emotionally regulate when they can't regulate themselves or you can't explore, you can't risk as much. Um, if you can't risk as much without relying on other people to help you and you can't you don't have people that can tolerate intense emotions around you either they will leave you or they'll begin to attempt to get you to limit your exploration so you're not constantly upset and they don't have to deal with it is that making sense 
So not only is having the capacity to emotionally regulate good for your own exploration, it's good for the people that you have around you. And the greater your capacity to allow a compassionate response to the people who are close to you uh, and the suffering that comes from um, uh, uh, you know, disappointment or fearfulness or whatever it is about the exploration that they want to do, the more supported that they will feel, the greater their capacity to explore with me, which will translate into the greater meaning in their lives and the greater value they have for you because they can't do it without you really because if you're not there to catch them and help them explore they can't explore as far so that means you become increasingly invaluable valuable to them which means they uh, take care of you better and support you better and encourage you better because they need you to stick around you're understanding how that capacity for uh, great emotional regulation not only direct, directly benefits you but it benefits the people around you and it makes you more valuable to them. So you're more likely to have a solid base of, or a solid network of relationships. We are pack animals, um, which means we hunt in groups. <laughs> As you can see by the devastation we lay on, laid on this planet. We're really good at organizing and just taking whatever we want. Um, but we need to be part of that group in order for that to function. The, the lone wolves don't really don't do as well, even though, uh, you know, we have this whole movie industry that generates uh, John Wayne on a horse. At the end, he gets the girl, but instead rides off into the sunset on his own. What is that? 